Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon, a unique blend of hunting, fishing, wildlife conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle. DSC's Campfires is brought to you by DSC conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. Hornady, accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon, brilliant aiming solutions. Taurus, award-winning pistols and revolvers. Mossberg, American built, American strong. Habit, our gear, your adventure. Welcome to another campfire. Got Mr. Brandon Houston with us today, and I thought we'd talk a little bit of Brandon about springtime. Let's do it. Spring turkey season's been here. Spring bear season is about to get kicked off a lot of different places, but through H3 Whitetail Solutions and a bunch of things that you and I have both done in the past and mm -hmm. are doing now, what do you recommend people do in the springtime when it comes to whitetail deer, particularly in terms of management and habitat? Well, you know, this time of year, everybody's out looking for antlers. Look for shit, right? And and we have spent a fair amount of time this year thus far, you know, across the areas that we've been looking for antlers. And antlers can tell us a lot. You know, people don't realize that when antlers hit the ground, there's a lot of things to look at. And we were talking about those on the last ranch that we were on. You know, last year we were in a drought, and so what did we have? We had a lot of deer with a with a rather large pedicle, but then the mass just it just didn't match. And and you know. The nutrients that the, that the habitat would normally have were just not there. And those deer majorly suffered. And you could tell it. It looked like you had taken the pedicle of a five-year-old and stuck the mass of a two-year-old on top of it. And, and those are good indicators for people. A lot of people may not realize that as well. You're right. To me, you can learn a lot by the shit antlers. Number one, it tells you, of course, where that deer was at a certain period mm -hmm. of time. And also in saying that, I will say that I've shot some really big white-tailed deer whose cast antlers I found, and I shot them within 100 yards of where that deer's antlers were found. There's something specific a lot of times with white-tailed deer. Mule deer are totally different because they're migratory, but with white-tailed deer, sometimes those really older age bucks have a tendency to become well, their home range kind of shrinks a little bit, but and then you, as you mentioned, you can tell a lot by looking at the pedicle. You can tell a lot about looking at the beam right above it and by the size of the antlers. And there's a there's a study that's out right now that says that if the the, the burr part, the burr being where that antler attaches to that pedicle, if it's con, uh, convex, it's probably off of a deer that's in really good nutrition had during the growing season and during the breeding season. If it's concave then there's a pretty good chance that that deer was a little bit nutritionally stressed somewhere in mm -hmm. the more recent history of his, of his life. So that, that you can do that. Of course, I look at shit antlers a lot. I love finding shit antlers. Don't and I, I know you're the same way because yes. I've watched you. We'll see a shit antler over there and it's not that you can be out there, but we'll take off at a run <laughs> like we've got to beat a whole crowd to go grab that yeah. thing. 
And then, you know, to me, it's truly a piece of art in so many different ways and totally unique to that one buck Absolutely. that year, that situation. So they're a treasure in so many different ways. And we, we mentioned nutrition, and as you said, this past year we saw a lot of bucks that had some age on them, had big pedicles. And then right above the uh, uh, burr, being the, the part that it, where it attaches kind of thing, but right above it, it would be narrower and then uh, the, the, the actual pedicle was. And in a good nutrition year, particularly on mature deer, you'd expect mm -hmm. to have a big pedicle, but then the main beam be as at least as big, but in most instances bigger than what that uh, pedicle attachment area was. And that's just wasn't the case this year on no. several ranches that we looked at. We, of course, and, were and in all some, over the place too. Yes, and we were in a, a pretty substantial drought during the growing season. Now, some of that's kind of going on right now in some areas. Some areas have been getting some rainfall, so it's going to be interesting to see what we kind of see as we get a bit closer into the time where you can really tell what they're going to be looking like. But right now, as you mentioned, is that great time to look for <coughs> shit antlers. Of course, one of the things that I do too is. I look for some of the older antlers because if they've been really chewed upon, look like by a cow or a deer, you know, that's going to tell me that, yeah, there's probably a little bit of light on calcium, phosphorus, maybe some of the trace mm -hmm. minerals, and that might be an area that if you're not fertilizing the food plot, and even if you are, you might want to set up a mineral leak in that area kind of thing because there is something lacking there, otherwise they wouldn't be chewing on the antlers. Now, that's not talking about the little bitty rats and right. mice that you see chewing on them. And, uh, but if it looks like a, a larger animal with larger teeth has been chewing on an antler, pretty good indication they're lacking something in that area. Well, I remember the first article I ever wrote in my life was, was on that. It, it was on right. the chewing and the gnawing of antlers beyond a squirrel, a rat, right. field rat, whatever it may be. But, you know, there was a video that went viral. It still plays around out there to this day where it's, it's a cow up, up, up in the pasture and he's chewing on an antler. And, and it's gone. I mean, God knows how far it's gone nowadays, but I tell people when they ask me about it, because that kept getting brought up when I was writing my article, was, you know, well, that cow had probably reached down and grabbed a mouthful of grass and picked that shed antler up, and I said, no, sir. No, that mm -hmm. cow knew exactly what it was, but that lack of phosphorus, that lack of calcium that is there, those deer know it. And some of those deer will go back and chew on those antlers. They know where they cast them. And, and same thing with the cow. Um, and that's, to me, that, that's really, really neat. That's things that a lot of people don't know. And, you know, that's, you, we all get used to seeing the nibbling around the tips from squirrels and rats and mice and whatever else is out there. But to think about it in that perspective, there's a lot to learn. We still know there's a lot to learn in that perspective. But, you know, that is why nutritional planning within your herd, no matter where you are, is so crucial. And, and knowing, what your soil can produce, what is in the soil. You know, we were having a conversation a couple weeks ago with a rancher about mineral. And he said, you know, would we put mineral, how many would we do, and what was our answer? Our answer, the first thing was, not until we find out what the selenium in the soil is. You know, since we're talking about shit antlers in particular, years and years ago when we started looking at producing rations, it was Dr. Larry Varner, who's since unfortunately passed away, but Larry was with the, uh, Texas A&M Extension Service there in Uvalde where I was and we got to looking at shit antlers and big antlers and why does why is this area producing consistently bigger antlers than this area or this area this year of course we knew protein and calcium and phosphorus and all that kind of thing but we also did some work on trace minerals and, and what we did is we had people all over North America where there were big antlers and big our bucks produced big antlers sent us some shit antlers from there we went to other areas where there were produced little bitty bucks kind of thing as far as antlers are concerned and we did a, a, a chemical analysis of the uh, of the antlers and we were looking primarily at trace minerals at that time and and one of the things that we found consistently again going back years ago as far as trace minerals were concerned in those areas that produced big antlers was they were higher in zinc manganese and copper those were three trace minerals that they were higher in as compared to this area over here that didn't quite, quite produce the kind of antlers that, that maybe they should have kind of thing. So, you know, it, it's a continual learning process. We've learned a lot about antlers and antler development and all those, and nutrition, of course, as well, too, a lot since then. But it, it kind of goes back to where antlers are kind of the indicator, if you will. Right. 
and that can be the animal's health, it can be the nutrition, it can be, of course, age and genetics play into all that Absolutely. well too. But, but there's so much to be learned about those shit antlers. To me, right now is the time when you really want to get out and look for them. Absolutely. But also this time is, like we said, is it's a very crucial time to be thinking about fetal development and <clears throat> making sure that you're providing those nutrients, whether it be from planting a field or it be from supplemental feeding, and there's a variety of, of products on the market today that can that can offer that, but Absolutely. that fetal programming is, is beyond important for the future of the herd. I mean, being able to provide a new nutrition and surplus so that the, the milk in our does is very rich and helps those, when those fawns hit the ground, can help them hit the ground bigger, they can stand up quicker. They can help with decreasing uh, predation. I mean, everything. And it's so important to focus on that right now in, 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 in a variety of ways. You're, you're, that field development is so important, just as you mentioned, for, again, so many ways, which also happens to coincide about the time of the bucks have dropped their antlers, they're starting to grow again as well, too. Absolutely. So this springtime is a really important time but also this this time frame that's just passed mm -hmm. to where we're looking in late winter. We want to be able to bring those deer out of the rut and starting the gestation period as far as the does are concerned in that higher nutritional level kind of thing. And, and But that fetal stage is, is so important for that doe to develop that good sized fawn that's got, that's a healthy fawn. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it the more the higher nutritional level that that animal is as you know is going to produce a fun that's going to be substantially ahead of the game okay how do we get them there how do we make sure that that's going to happen within the does at the same time the bucks are getting the nutrients and the nutrition that they need well one in my in my personal opinion one very important thing i believe that gets overlooked a lot and that is it goes back to managing the energy level of your herd and, and if your herd is, if your deer have low energy, it, it affects conception. It affects those does going into estrus and or how long it may take them to cycle in. It affects your, your first year does from reaching a specific body weight to be able to be in estrus. It'll affect, it absolutely affects antler development. Your bucks, when they're coming out of the rut at 30, 40% body fat being gone, that recovery period becomes so much longer for them to recover that body fat again. But then again, we go back into fetal pr production. When those does go in and they don't have any stored up body fat, they have to replenish that before yeah. their body will start to produce a, a, a nutrient rich uh, milk for those fawns to feed those fawns. It, it can drastically affect everything. That's where I, that's where I think it starts. I mean, I'm, I, in, in, in a small aspect. It does, and, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up the energy thing because we did a bunch of research through Texas A&M University Kingsville with ADM, which is the company that owns Mormon Mineral years ago when I was involved with Los Cazadores hunting headquarters, and <clears throat> that we developed our own rational. We did a tremendous amount of research <clears throat> as far as what is important in the deer's diet and from a timely manner as well, too. Uh, several things we found out. Two being energy is every bit as important as protein is over a period of years, of a period of a year. And the consistency of that diet in a straight line yes. in so much of the eastern half and part of the northern part of the country, springtime you'll have 30-40% protein, all kinds of high nutrients because of the green stuff. During the wintertime, there's very few are very little for them to eat at times. And so you have this very high and very low. And if you look at like parts of South Texas and other parts of the country that are somewhat similar, that line is pretty much across the board all the time. One of the things we learned about South Texas where we've historically had big deer, big antlers, or big antlers, I guess, because a lot of people argue with me on deer, but it's not that uncommon now to see deer that field dress 200 pounds. Mm -hmm. Is one of the things we found is the protein and all the nutrient levels beyond that were pretty much a straight line, but there were times when there was virtually no energy, when there weren't mesquite beans because of the high sucrose level in that pod and a few other things, there was no energy. So 
in those areas where we increased the energy, now all of a sudden not only did the antlers grow from big to bigger, but so did the bodies. And it just kind of shown the fact that how important that energy Absolutely. was. And again, on a straight line rather than these peaks and you know, deep valleys kind of thing. There was an article that was put out a couple of years ago. I, I can't remember who wrote it, but it was through Caesar Kleberg. Mm -hmm. and, and there was a phrase in there that has always stuck with me, and I think it is it is superb. And it's it stated, it doesn't basically it doesn't matter what your nutritional plan is. Low energy will derail any good game management plan, particularly when it comes to whitetail. And it's true if you think about it. How will you ever be able to reach a surplus nutrition level without good energy? You, you cannot do it. Those mm -hmm. deer don't have mm -hmm. the body fat to transfer those nutrients. No. They don't have the body fat to keep moving forwards. They're not maintaining. Like you said, there's no maintenance. Everything is up and down. And we all know that nutritionally with the whitetail, it's all about consistency. You know, you get so many guys that, that particularly in Texas, that they want to feed this, but then they see something and it's, oh, well, this guy's growing bigger deer over here, so that's what I need to be feeding. And that is the absolute <laughs> worst thing that you can do for Absolutely. a ruminant animal. And that's where you're better off to just stay consistent and add little things, but give it time. Absolutely. The thing about it is, you're, regardless whether it's all native forage or whether you're feeding an animal, particularly the ruminant, which of course the deer is a ruminant, Anytime you drastically change the diet within that animal, that ruminant's diet, you totally destroy the ruminal flora and all the little bacterium and things that are there that are responsible for breaking down what that deer is eating. So if you have this deer on a certain level of, of nutrition and then all of a sudden you greatly alter it, it destroys everything in there and there is a definite setback, if you will, nutritionally until that new ruminal flora and bacterium can come into play. So. Uh, to me, that's again the reason why it's so consistent. We do a, a fair amount of, of feeding in certain areas of Texas to increase the nutrition level. And I have guys tell me, well, we're just going to feed four months out of the year. And, you know, and then and they, and they don't see any kind of results. And, you, and they go, what in the world? Why? We, we fed, we did this, we did that. Well, you didn't because you, when you all of a sudden decided no longer to have any kind of food available in a trough, that animal took a step back very quickly, and it takes a while to recover from those kind of things. And and that's just one cog in the wheel. Oh yeah, you it know, is. They, you know, getting it at the herd's nutritional level up is one thing, but then, you know, there is habitat maintenance. There is maintenance through the numbers. You know, I see guys all the time. They're like, oh wow, well, we're feeding protein year round, but they there's never been a doe one killed off their place. You know, I, I've never seen them go out and monitor the herd. Never go out and see you know, through spotlight surveys or camera surveys to determine is there too many deer per acre? Is there not enough deer per acre? You know, that is one aspect of it. But but as for right now, being consistent is the most important thing. Giving them, providing it to them, but but also understanding that when with protein, especially pellets and minerals and blocks. It is there to provide them something that Mother Nature can't at a specific time. We're just trying to, as everybody has said a hundred times, bridge that, that gap. Deer are always gonna go to the habitat. And you want them to go to the habitat, particularly this time of year, when a lot of those nutrients are young and they're growing and they're so full of nutrition, that's where you really want your deer. I would much rather have my trail cameras not going off all the time. <laughs> because I know my habitat is working. Then exactly. having my cameras going off, in my opinion, if you got your deer's face stuck in a spout, feeding on protein at this time of year, you probably need to step back and evaluate what's going on. Yeah, there's probably a problem with your habitat. Yeah, absolutely. Or with your herd in terms of numbers and all those other kind of things. Let's talk a little bit about planting now. And I'm gonna take a step back because I'm a big proponent as well of fertilizing certain particular plants in different yes. areas in the wintertime and fertilizing the drip line of trees where we do produce acorns or persimmons being a hard soft saw hard mast or soft mast kind of thing. But we're also coming up on a time right now when, when their food plots from a winter perspective, those cool season plants are starting to play out. How do we bridge that gap of getting from the cool season plants to going back into those same fields and 
maybe doing some spring planting or summer planting? Well, you know, coming out of those cool seasons, one of the things I've, I like that we do is knocking, knocking those cool seasons off and providing those seeds for the birds and all the wildlife. You know, with, to me, I, I feel as conservationists, as hunters, we should be focused on all the wildlife that inhabit a, a piece of property. Uh, however, going into the summer times, you know, every piece of property has a different solidium in the soil. And every piece of property has different things. And some things that will work on, on this side of the fence may not work on, on the Absolutely. other side of the fence. And so, you know, every, every place is different. You know, like the, our place in the northern part of Texas, you know, we're going to be doing some stripping. Or we'll right. have some triticale, we'll have some cow peas, we'll have some corn. You know, and so back, back, back to your point, I think you, it's important to have a plan in place. It's important to do things that one of the things I really loved that you mentioned was, you know, going in and talking to those farmers, the local farmers about, you know, what do you plant? What is working? But what is working that those deer are <laughs> annihilating? You know, they don't want those deer to annihilate them, but that guy may be right over there. That, that's a good thing. You know, if, if you can go from oats and they're okay, but, but boy, they plant the wheats in the winter and yeah, they just get annihilated. Well, there's your answer. Exactly. What Brad's referring to so very often when I'm asked about what can I, what should I be planting? My general statement is, our question to them is, is what is that local farmer planting that the deer, as you mentioned, are just going in and annihilate them? Now, deer are very finicky eaters. Yes. Uh, the brassicas and the, those kind of things can be great, great deer foods. But it's going to take them a while to, re to, to come to those to figure it out. I've seen brassicas planted in areas where the deer were covering up a food plot and they just totally avoided it for two years before they finally figured out what it was kind of thing. So to me, the question comes back to what do you plant? We'll go to the farmer and find out, you know, is he planting soybeans or a particular variety of soybeans or wheat or oats or rye or uh, not so much rye. I'm not a big rye fan, to be honest with you, but some of the cereal things. There, there, now there's also a lot of different, like uh, al grazing alfalfas that can be planted. Well, to me, and you mentioned the fact that we're going in and we're planting a strip of this. Mm -hmm. We're planting a strip that maybe in the field, it, maybe it's one planter wide or maybe it's two planter wide, depending upon the field. And we're changing what we're planting in there. And we're going to the, uh, pretty much to the local feed and seed dealer and finding out what the farmers are planting. And again, same kind of thing. That way we know it's going to grow in that area. You know, it does well in that kind of basic soil types, does well in that kind of temperatures. The deer generally have a tendency to like it, but we'll also plant some things that are that are maybe brand new to that deer herd as well too. But plant a strip and then move over and plant a strip and then go in and see where you get the most forage production, but also with the realization that that forage production may be getting nipped off as soon as it comes up as well too. Right. Which simply tells you that deer really like it, it grows in that area, and we need to plant more of it, yep. you know, kind of thing. And that's good you've said that because, again, that is us giving a buffet, have you will. Oh, absolutely. And, and us monitoring it to determine what those deer like. And, and, and what they like will change throughout that season. So we'll be able to document what that is. But then you have on the, on the other hand, there's, there's people out there that know everything about their soil. And they know what works. And, and absolutely. The, what I don't, what I hate to see happen to people is they watch TV or they read an article or in their magazine, they're going, well, this, you know, once again, back to just like protein, this guy's planting this over here and he's just got these ginormous deer. I'm going to change it up. But yet those deer are hammering what he's currently doing. And it's providing the nutrition it that is. they need. It, it, it but it may is. take a year or two for that. Usually mm -hmm. a three-year period is what I try to look at yep. as opposed to that year change kind of thing. But, yeah, that, to, to me, I, I love the fact of, of trying different things. I want to see, what again, what grows in that area and, and what deer eat. But as I mentioned, deer, too, are really finicky. You know, they're, they're basically browsers, and their noses are pointed. Like a cow, they're a ruminant. But a cow has got a big old square nose and it reaches in there with its tongue and grabs everything that's there. But a deer wolf with that pointed nose will, will reach in there. Kind of like, you know, I, I hate to kind of in a way relate it to this way, but the difference between a, a white rhino, white, not necessarily white, 
the the the, uh, the the white rhino or vide rhino, which says maybe had a broad muzzle, is is a grazer, and the black rhino, which has kind of a a pigeon, I mean a, a beak type of thing, is is a browser, and the same thing. They're eating different things, but that browser has that pointed type of muzzle to where it can reach in and grab the most nutritious part of any plant. So. You know, what do you plant? Well, you, you, let the deer tell you. you let, let the deer tell you. Let the deer tell you. And a farmer, a lot of times, is the, the perfect place to go to start with. And then those seeds are generally available at a, a somewhat reduced price and not necessarily a, a pretty bag at the local feed and seed dealer. And you can plant a little bit more than what you might plant if you were buying a fancy bag kind of thing. Well, here's a question. Here's a qu Actually, this is a question we got on social media last week. Right. So you have more experience when it comes to planting than I do. So I'm going to let you answer this one. If you're going to do strips, like what we're talking mm -hmm. about, and you had a strip that the deer did not touch, mm -hmm. maybe there's a few deer in it, but they just, they were, they hit certain things. Would you go back and plant that strip again next year to give it another year and give it another shot? Or would, would you change it up? I would probably plant it as a strip. I would not plant it as, as a wholesale kind of area kind of thing. And you got you to gotta realize that you, you'd want to produce forage. I, I used to get tickled because I'd go to the southeast and here are these guys who planted, and I can't remember the variety of rye, but I mean, we'd go to their, their, their deer hunting area and they'd have these absolutely verdant, beautiful, green food plots. It all came up to about your knee. And we'd go out there and they'd say, man, isn't that pretty? That looks so good. You know, and I'd go, uh, are the deer eating it? And so we'd walk into the food plot and you, all you'd find is deer tracks going across the food plot. You'd never see where a deer had eaten them. You know, and so I'd go, man, this is absolutely beautiful. It's really pretty. I said, but uh, are you planning it to be pretty? Or are you planning it for the deer? So I'd get them to try something. And I said, well, I'll just plant one little field with this next year, you know. And they'd plant it, and it'd come up to where it'd be about two or three inches tall, and the deer would just go in there and annihilate it. And they'd call me back and say, oh, Dad, come deer, they cleared out my field. I can't believe they ate everything. And I said, well, why did you plant it? Did you not plant it so that the deer would eat it? Or did you plant it simply to look at it and look pretty? I said, maybe that area that look pretty, you need to go in and plant more of what you planted over here that the deer absolutely annihilated because they're telling you that they like this stuff and they're eating it because it's good for them and there's not enough. So expand that, you know, whatever it is kind of thing. Yeah. I, yeah that, and it's funny, I read something one time that said a manicured place will not be your big deer producer. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, I've never, no. I've, out of all the places I've been on that we've managed, that I've managed, I've never had a big producer come off of this just most pristine, beautifully lush green grass area. It's always those more rugged, left kind of native, oh, yes. helped along, whether it be through ax or fire or tractor. And Well, again, there you got a, a greater variety, but with that variety, you mentioned something earlier, is that we manage wildlife. Yes, we're managing for maybe a targeted species, be it turkey, white-tailed deer, mule deer, elk, whatever. But when you improve that habitat to where you have a greater variety in, in terms of vegetation, guess what? Then you have a greater variety in terms of birds, in terms of insects, in terms of any and everything having to do with the, the outdoors in terms of the wild situation. And basically that's what you want to be that. When you start seeing a great variety of things in the same area, that means you're, you're doing well. That, that habitat's doing well. Yeah, and I love that. I, you know, it's uh, so often people never think about the songbirds, about the game birds, whatever it may be. But I always love that transgressional stage of being able to go out on places that we work on. And then you get into the hunting season and we're, we have the opportunities to hunt a lot of these places. And over those years, watch that the things we get to see when we're in the stand changes there's oh this year we're seeing more red birds and blue birds and sparrows and all all these yeah. here they go well they're not there just by chance no no they're not no. and they're not there because of a corn feeder either no no they're there no. because that habitat is providing them multiple things multiple ways um we've probably increased water on the property you know providing especially in places where we're doing you know supplemental feeding it's so important to have water readily available. 
You know, it, they need that water to wash everything down, to get everything moving. And, and it's interesting to see in those places where all that happens. You know, you have wild hogs. We have, you know, different, different predatorial species from bobcats and coyotes and all that. And even though we keep them managed, they're still beautiful to watch. I still love seeing them. You know what, they really are. You, you mentioned the water. The water is really important, even in areas where you have water. Uh -huh. We're in a lot of the stuff that we do in terms of management. Water, it comes at a premium. So there are water troughs there, and they may be, we try to recommend people do a little spillover pond, because a, a deer and any other species of the wild would much rather go to a drink out of a mud hole than a fresh supply of water right here maybe in a trough. But if you're going to have troughs as well, one of the things that we've done, and some of I'm talking about troughs that are low enough to where that fond can get to. Yes. Remember, that fond needs moisture as well, too. But if those water troughs are low enough to the ground, maybe there's a little lip so that they don't get set up so they don't spill out. Well, if you really want to help the game bird situation in here and the songbird situation, consider doing one or two things. Either find you a big old rock that you can sit in there that where that bird can fly to and light on that rock and then walk to the water's edge to drink as opposed to drinking over a lip or one of the things that we've done in some of these areas where we have huge storage areas if you will of uh, we call them pilas but it's just a big storage water area that maybe drains water to various troughs out of the way is just take a like a two by twelve cut it about four foot long put a nail in the bottom or a screw in the bottom where you can anchor it to like a pound of, uh, of coffee can of, of uh, rocks and to where that thing stays in one spot to where those birds can fly onto that thing and drink. And it's amazing how you will find a greater amount of, of particularly in terms of birds and insects to a point like butterflies and dragonflies and I mean the list goes on and on. When you do those kind of things, either with a rock in the trough or with a, with a floating platform, that you've anchored so that it's not going to go to the side or anything like that. Maybe if you got a float system, uh, like a lot of those do, to where uh, that interferes with the float. So to me, rock or one by 12, two by 12, whatever you can float in that water, <laughs> make it easier for them to get to. Well, and that, when you were talking about that, it reminded me of our our first our first episode of the show, The Journey. Yes. That just aired last week. Right. That was what the whole show was. Yeah, the whole show water. was us being at the ranch and we were hunting over water. And, and we had a tremendous amount of does that came in. We were particularly there for that, for the management side of the does. But, but every one of those does that came in had fawns. Well, what was, what was neat about that, and, and to prove to what you're saying, is we had water troughs off to our left. Mm -hmm. Nice water troughs, mm -hmm. concrete, oh, yeah. they were short. Yep. They were short enough that a fawn could get to it. The birds could get to it, the cattle could get to it. But there was a spillover there, and and I was I was reminded when you said that, and, and only because I remember the deer with the green spout that I just absolutely loved. But <laughs> I remembered that in the, that day, as many animals as we saw, and I bet we had seventy five deer come in oh, yeah. that that, that we first did. afternoon. Those does would get up at those ponds and they would they would drink, but those fawns would stay in the spillover that was going from the water trough spilling over and then draining down to the. Those fawns were staying in that little pulse pool right that's no bigger than this area you yeah, and i are sitting in yeah. and that's where they were drinking even the mama was right here yeah. they they attempted to come up to the trough but every time they would go right to that spillway and i've seen that happen so many times so i, I it's it's very important that those little things that people know can make a huge huge difference a huge difference it is. It, it, it's amazing. It, you mentioned it's, it's, it's the devil is in the detail kind of thing, or the good work is a lot of times in the detail as well, too. The same kind of thing. So, okay, we've covered a little bit about nutrition. We've covered a little bit about uh, the importance of water, which is a, a truly a, an important nutrient when you get right down to it. Let's, this is a time when some of our areas we're coming. We're not going to talk so much about the snow this time. I want to come back. I've got a couple guys that are up in Wyoming and Montana, and the winter snows have been ungodly bad this year. We're in somewhat of a little bit of a drought situation again over much of our country. And with that drought situation, there's not a whole lot of vegetation. So let's talk a little bit about predation. How important is it to have a good habitat with ground cover to kind of offset some of this 
situation with, with potential predators, predators meaning primarily bobcats to some extent, which are extremely efficient at killing critters, and, and the coyotes. Uh, should we recommend with there not being a whole lot of ground vegetation for them to hide behind? Should we be recommending people go out and hunt hard or try to, to take predators? Without a doubt. <laughs> I mean, it, again, it goes back to a drought where I can't really go to the edge of a, of a, of a field or whether it's a strip that we've created and create any type of fawn cover. Yeah, you better stay on those coyotes. Yeah. I mean, you absolutely better stay on those coyotes. I shot a, I shot a hog this last week in western Texas. <clears throat> he was about 375 yards. We shot him late. So we decided to just go in there after. I watched him die in the field. We went back in at 10. He was completely drug off. And when we found him, and it'll air on an episode of The Journey, when we found him, he was picked clean. The only thing that was left was a piece of the spine and the bones. And that was a at least a 300 pound hog, and he did not lay there long enough to swell or to smell. And all I could think about when I found that was, oh my goodness, you better do something because you're about to have fawns hitting the ground. And exactly. so uh, you, uh, <clears throat> exactly. you, you don't ever want to fully eliminate the predator, but you have to be able to monitor it and get it down to a manageable percentage. You know. Natural mortality is a, is a factor, but predation has to be managed or, or it will wipe out your fawn herd. I think that what we saw in, in Texas a couple of years back with, you know, we, don't, we didn't get a bunch of snow, but we did have that freeze. I mean, it wiped out a tremendous amount of access in our, our, our area. But I think also too, it really hurt a lot of our does, which right after that happened, then our fawns hit the ground and I think that there was probably the recruitment percentage was substantially lower that year. And I've seen there's been a big jump in predators since then, it seems, in, in the areas that we work in. Exactly. I think, of course, the predators are so much prey-based, and, and uh, there were more opportunities for those <laughs> predators with those weakened conditions that those fawns had, and to some extent, too, some of the mothers, and, and, the, and the, even going back to some of the bucks as well, too, you know, coming out of the rut, because that nutrition we talked about earlier in terms of late winter, or early winter is really important to have those animals on a, on a good energy diet, particularly, and protein as well, too, and of course all the trace minerals. But uh, for that animal to, and going with that, I've seen bucks that were, that chased pretty hard, that were say, let's say they were 160, which is a really big white-tail buck, and they'd be like a three or four-year-old deer. And they chased real hard and ran themselves down into the dirt, literally, and, at the same time, there wasn't that recovery opportunity because of nutrition. I've watched those bucks that scored, <clears throat> excuse me, in the 160s from one year after chasing really hard and not having the nutrition to recover in time to go to like a 120, 115. And, you know, and a lot of times those bucks in some places got shot because they went from this absolutely beautiful, typical 12 point, 10 point to this very mediocre eight point in a year and people were shooting them because, well, we're culling eight points. And I'm going, oh, what kind of year did you have, you know, kind of thing. Because those medium-aged bucks, a lot of times their antlers will regress a tremendous amount in a year if that nutrition isn't there. So, uh, and even sometimes when the nutrition is there, those individual animals just can't recover quick enough. So, you know, that, but that time frame of coming out of the rut as we talked earlier, getting back to the nutrition side of things. We're just past that now with the spring coming on, but that's a really important time, particularly for some of the mature deer and some of those deer that are just starting to mature as well, too. Well, and, and in our last episode, we, were, we had <laughs> cut. <laughs> Can you reach that sign right there? Yeah, I can. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. I knew that was about to freaking happen. Okay. Hang on, just say we're cut for just a minute, but okay. Okay, ready, Chris? Yes. Well, in our last episode, we we, we had Craig Archer with us from yes. Double A Outfitting. And, exactly. And one of the things we talked about was, you know, they can they could take twenty five bucks off that place a year. You know, 
thousands and thousands and thousands of acres, but they don't do it. And they don't do it because they know what their herd can handle. They're in a drought. So he may choose to only take six bucks off that place yep. this year. He was majorly hurt by the freeze. You know, they're, I mean, we're out there, you don't see any whitetail does. We, we've started to see a few now, but you have to know the herd. You have to be able to be out there and monitor it. But one of the things that I really like about out there, and one of the things I really like that he does is, and I can't stress this enough, is just because a deer's five and a half years old does not mean he needs to be shot. No. You have no. to go back and you have to be able to pay attention to deer. It's just like on, on my place where you've hunted multiple times. There is, there is a genetic of a specific deer out there, actually two, that we found that at, if you kill that deer at five and a half, you, you lose the opportunity to kill him with 20 more inches on him. He doesn't bloom until he's seven and a half years old. And how many times have you said, you found deer in South Texas that would could go to nine and 10, and would, they may drop it and then just bloom, blossom right back. But that was because you allowed those deer to grow like that. You allowed them to see what it was. And that's, that's knowing the deer herd that yes. you're, you're dealing with. Uh, there are numerous bucks that come to mind that we had a pretty good idea because of the fact that they had a, maybe a, a cut in their ear or a spot on their body that made them very distinctive and those kind of things. And some of those bucks, even though they were very impressive at five and six and seven years old, particularly five or six and seven, and uh, we, we decided just let's see what they're going to turn into. And they'd be like in the 150s, 160s, and then they, at like eight, they would drop down to 140. But he was a very distinctive looking deer, and you could tell which one he was because of, you know, maybe a cut in the ear, as I mentioned, or a spot. And you left that deer, and all of a sudden, it gets to be where he's like 10, 11 years old. And that deer at 10, 11, and 12, and one buck that I know is 13, uh, guess what? their antlers increased from the time that their best antlers to by as much as 50 and 60 Boone and Crockett points. So I'm not, and I'm not talking about spread, I'm talking about main beams, tines, mass, all those kind of things. So to me it becomes important that if you have distinctive animals that you can leave, that you can say, okay, we're not going to shoot that buck that's got He's missing part of his ear on the right side, or he's got a, a, a white spot on his shoulder, or maybe he's got four long stocking feet, you know, as far as white. Let's leave that buck and see what he turns into. It's amazing what some of those deer, once they go past that maturity stage and then they get in that really old stage and all of a sudden they're not moving very much anymore and their nutritional requirements aren't as high as what they were and they're not chasing does and all that kind of stuff. Well, guess what? Anything that they're not eating for just that pure maintenance all of a sudden gets channeled into antler development. And so some of those really old bucks, those 10 to 13 year old bucks will be up here and the best they've ever had antler wise will be down quite a bit. And, and that was a good point you brought up too, which is is looking for those identifying markers. Oh, absolutely. Identified deer. This time of year, the trail cameras we, want, we run, and with the advancements of how good they're becoming, I actually like to take our trail cameras, which you've seen us do with our clients, and move a lot of those trail cameras closer to the ground and add a second angle. Oh, yeah. Therefore, when I have a deer come in, I not only have that eye level angle, but sometimes finding those markers on the feet in the back of the hooves or around the hawks or anything like that can come from that second angle down below. Plus, in Texas, I'm always watching for snake bites and so on and oh, so absolutely. forth as we get into spring. But absolutely. it's enabled us to be able to find little bitty things that allows us to watch deer. I had a um, years ago, well, not years ago, I guess, <laughs> a couple of years ago, I had a deer come in that was a first-year buck, and he had 12 typical points, and he had two kickers on both main beams, and he was about this big. He wouldn't even score oh 100 God. inches. About, about six Just inches like wide inside. But, you know, when you see a deer like that, you're going, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Luckily, because of that lower, that lower spot, he had a random black patch on his back knee that I was able to identify him as. He casted his antlers, which we never found. And for mm. three years, I watched that deer. And that deer was nothing for three years. Even at, at, when he was four years old, he never was more than 135 inch eight point. Never had any more points. We finally, we finally took him out at six and a half years old. And he's the, he's the 13 point that scored 161 that my little eight year old shot, Stetson. Yeah. But he never, he never looked like he did as a first year, first year buck until he was six and a half years old. Yeah. 
and I probably would have not shot him, except I couldn't turn my little boy down <laughs> no, no, sitting there begging no, at the stand. No, but, no. but but to say he was an eight-year-old, he was an eight-point his entire life. Yeah. I don't know, you know, I know we were in kind of a, you know, nutrition-depressed era at that time with rainfall, but it was pretty neat to see that. And two, he, he may have been one of those bucks that really chased really hard. You know, the, the, I tell people a lot of times, well, there were studies done years ago about testosterone levels. And some of these bucks that have just huge, huge antlers and kickers and all those kind of stuff, they have got, they had just enough testosterone to put them through the antler cycle. But they, the testosterone level during the breeding season isn't real high, so they don't chase, so they don't get run down. And they don't fight, so they don't break off the little tips sometimes. And I often tell people, I said, you know, if you're at a deer show, like you've been at the Iowa Deer Classic or maybe the Texas Trophy Show or some of these other type shows where a lot of people will bring in, you know, their animals that they took. If you see that buck that's got all kinds of points and there's not any breakage at all, well, it tells me he didn't rub very much. He, he probably didn't fight very much. And he's probably one of those deer that produced just enough testosterone to get him through the antler cycle but he never gets run down. And those deer sometimes have the tendency to really grow the better antlers because they don't expose themselves to all these different dangers that, that a, maybe a regular buck that does chase a lot does. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and on that, here was, a, here was another question we got last week. Um, was, was why do certain deer cast their antlers at certain times and others don't? And, and what stemmed that question was, we were on a particular ranch last week where I would, I would say if any whitetail buck had casted his antlers, it would be under 10% of the herd. Yeah. But 15 miles down the road, there was not a single buck on that place who, did, ha, who had antlers. Actually, as a matter of fact, every buck on that place had nubs coming up. Already started growing up to yep. where they inch longer. So in your opinion, what do you think? Well, how would you answer that? Now, the nutritional value of those two deer are completely different. Yeah, generally, and it, it varies so much because I've learned a long time ago, you never hardly make a single definite statement when you deal with whitetail. <laughs> They'll make you a liar. They're gonna make a liar. <laughs> generally, it can be said, in most instances, all those excuses built, <laughs> built into it, Generally, if that deer is nutritionally stressed, they have a tendency to drop their antlers a little bit quicker and they'll carry them a little bit longer. But also, deer have a tendency to drop their antlers generally within a, just a day or two time of, of each year, generally. I mean, that's not always the case, but we've had several deer that I've dealt with that we had that we could recognize and they were in an area where we could see them with some regularity and they would drop those antlers or cast those antlers within the same day or maybe a 24-hour day period compared to noon today till noon tomorrow kind of thing. And so generally they would cast them at the same time, but with, with those deer that were now, are now already growing, you know, maybe they were nutritionally stressed or maybe not. Maybe that's just where that particular fa family units, if you will, kind of thing, deer herd, they cast earlier. My answer was, there's no straight answer. There's no straight answer. There's there, Nutrition can play a factor, age yep. can play a factor, exactly. testosterone can play a factor. And, and what is the exact definite answer here? Across the fence could be a completely different reason. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, because like you said, it, it is a known fact that those deer, when they're nutritionally stressed, will carry their antlers longer and, and hold on to them. But in this situation, that wasn't the case and those deer are holding on. So, to answer that question. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean, that's, that's, and that's one okay. of the, it, it, And it is, it's okay not to know. You know, we all wanna learn and we all wanna try to learn as much as we can about the deer that we're dealing with in places that we hunt particularly or that we're enamored with for whatever reason that might be. But uh, we're still learning and that learning to me is one of the more fascinating thing about whitetail deer is that every time I go out I seem to learn something to a little different or to assure myself that yeah what I thought that was the case really is and that lasts for a year then I found out well maybe no I made my decision to say okay this is the way it is a year too early kind of thing but it, it's a continual learning process when you come to whitetail deer, and, and that to me again was what makes those things 
such fascinating creatures that we deal with from a management perspective, from a hunting perspective, to just being, as I mentioned, just totally enamored with white-tailed deer. And that's why we love them. Amen. We learn something every time we go out and see them. Yes, you do. As long as you keep your eyes open and your ears open and, and have an open mind, and, and uh, you're going to learn something. And again, I think that is what makes these things so very, very fascinating and what you and I get to do even more fascinating. With that said, I think we've probably reached a point where we'll open this up for another discussion here before too, really like, too, too much farther down the road because I've been getting a lot of questions and I want to come back to some of those questions dealing with firearms and guns and hunting and those kind of things. We'll do that here in one of the next upcoming episodes. But if you got anything you'd like to hear about, you can always find us on Instagram at Larry Wysoon. Uh, and I'll let you tell all the other parts where since you're the guys are getting it out for me now. So. Any questions that you have, if you message Larry on Facebook, and it's the it's Larry Wysoon, the same thing on Instagram, at Larry Wysoon, um, you'll get an answer. If you have something you want to hear, if you have something you want to talk about, send us a message. We'll try to address it here. Absolutely. Um, if it's something that is a direct message. We will message, answer, regardless we, whether yes. we do it here so or you, not. So you never get a response from anybody but from Larry. If you're trying to reach out to both of us, you are getting our answers. Sometimes that may be a, a, a touch delayed because we do travel a fair amount. Sometimes we're not in the best cell reception, but I promise you, you will get an answer. If you have something you want us to answer on the on the show, we'll answer it on the show. If you have something Absolutely. that you want to know right then and right there, whether it's about a gun, about ammo, about a hunt, about you know something in management, we're more than happy to answer it. You're not getting an answer from some computer person in a tech room. You're not getting an answer from you know some call person. You are getting a, our answer. I, I assure you that. But you can also ask any question that you want through YouTube. Um, the YouTube channel where this episode, just like the, the two previous, will be is at DSC's Campfires with Larry Washington. Um, you can also will have the audio form of this available on Carbon TV, Waypoint TV, Spotify here in the next week and a half. And then you will also have it on Gen 7 Outdoors. Um, we will also, too, start producing this show and the two previous on Facebook TV and Instagram TV, which both can be found on um, Larry's personal Facebook, which is Larry Wysoon, and the Instagram as well. So we're easy to reach. You can also email us through H3YTEL Solutions. And also you can get a hold of us on the journey. Uh, the website will be live here soon. It'll be thejourneytelevision.com. Same thing with all of our social media, uh, The Journey Television on Facebook, The Journey Television on Instagram, um, and on Carbon TV as well, and, and many other places to come in the very near future. Brandon, thank you for being with me today. I know you're going to be back here for too very long. <laughs> We've got a couple others we're going to have to do with some of the uh, kind of remote situation. And, uh, but I really appreciate everything that you hit with. Uh, wasn't for you, I wouldn't be doing these things, quite frankly, because I, they wouldn't get done. <laughs> I love it. It's fun. <laughs> but I appreciate that, and I appreciate you being with me. And again, anytime you guys have any kind of questions or comments or whatever, Brandon told you all the many, many places you can find us and, and how to get in touch with us. And look forward to seeing everybody right back here next week. Remember to tell your friends about us as well, too, because we'd like to see our campfire grow bigger and bigger and bigger. Thank you for joining us. DSC's Campfires has also been brought to you by the Crown Bar in the Grange and Round Top, Texas, Texas Wildlife Association, Double Nickel Taxidermy, H3 Whitetail Solutions, and Burnham Brothers Game Calls.